Antisocial Behavior of Horace Rumpel by John Mortimer. Part 1. Rumpel on Trial. The life of the old Bailey hack has more ups and downs in it than the roller coaster on the end of Brighton Pier. At one moment you may be starring in a sensational murder in court number one at the Ludgate Circus Palais de Justice, and the next you're down the Snaresbrook Magistrates on a trivial matter of purloining a postal order or the receiving of stolen fish. Dear diary, Rumpole is down in the dumps. He's suffering from an acute shortage of work, which makes him almost impossible to live with. Rumpole in a high mood when he's engaged in an important murder trial, for instance, is not an easy man to live with either. If he wins such cases, it's even more impossible. And I'm expected to listen to quotations from his final speech and have asked if I have ever heard of a better courtroom advocate. When he's down in the dumps, however, and without any interesting briefs, he tends to sit in silence, only occasionally stirring himself to ask if we can't cut down on essential household cleaning materials. I was in chambers and was just lighting up a small cigar. This was in the days before smoking was promoted to a serious crime. When Soapy Sam Ballard, the so-called head of our chambers in Equity Court, entered my room. Rumpole, you missed the chambers meeting. <coughs> oh, I'm sorry. Was it exciting? Did you discuss the unsatisfactory state of the downstairs loo? Rather more important than that, we discussed global warming mm. and the carbon footprints we leave behind us. <coughs> During the discussion, Erskine Brown raised the matter of your small cigars and their effect on the environment. Oh, of course. Like one of these in the Thames rises 20 feet and washes away the clerk's room. We discussed your polluting the atmosphere. Liz Probert said you'd be known to keep slices of cold steak and kidney pudding in your filing cabinet. Oh, God knows what that'll do to the tides round Bogner. As head of chambers and one of Her Majesty's counsel, uh, it is my duty to tell you that you must become environmentally friendly, Rumble, or else further steps may have to be taken. On that unfriendly note, the head of our chambers left me. I was furious. It was galling to have Ballard flaunting his QC in my face when I was called to the bar years before him. It was then I had my first glittering vision of Rumpole in a silk gown ordering Ballard to keep the lavatories clean. I resolved to make my application for the front row. Yes? Mr. Rumpole? It was Bonnie Bernard, my favourite solicitor. Oh, what are you bringing me, Bonnie? A murder, or at least a grievous bodily harm? Nothing like that, I'm afraid. It concerns a member of the Timpson family. Oh, I've got to hand it to the Timpsons. Their brand of ordinary decent crime keeps the Rumpole family in groceries. This concerns Bertie. I remember him. An unsuccessful bank raid. Mm, indeed. He turned up late for it. Overslept, apparently. Yes. Well, this is his young son, Peter. He's 14 years old, been done for kicking a football. Is football a crime, then, nowadays? Like smoking? It can be. If you kick it in the wrong place, they can get an antisocial behaviour order against you. And if you do it again, you get banged up. I see. And where's this sensational trial taking place? Not the old Bailey. Uh, I'm afraid not. 
the South London Magistrates Court. The prosecution at the South London Court was a fresh-faced young solicitor by the name of Parks. He was as seriously excited as if he were opening a case of high treason. In this particular part of Clapham, Madam Chair, Beechwood Grove, an extremely respectable street, is inconveniently close to Rampton Road, which houses rougher and far noisier families. It was from this road that the defendant, <coughs> Peter Timpson, kicked his football into Beechwood Grove. This was particularly annoying to Mrs Englefield, a healer who treats patients in the quietness of her home. Madam Chair, I think you have Mrs Englefield's statement? We have read it carefully, Mr Parks. And, of course, this Mrs Englefield will be called as a witness, so I may cross-examine her. The chair of the magistrates had a pale, forbidding face and a hairdo which looked as though it had been carved out of yellow soap. Cross-examine her? I don't think we need no, that, do we, gentlemen? I don't think so. I don't believe we need to see her. No, I, I think mess. not. Her two bookends were a fat fellow with a trades union badge on his lapel and a lean and hungry-looking character who might have been a schoolmaster. There's no need for that, Mr Rumpole. We shall proceed on the written statement. So this child defendant is liable to be convicted on evidence which has never been tested in court? <laughs> you are free to call him Mr Rumpole, and you may address us, of course. That's very generous of you. I saw no point in calling young Peter to admit the charge against him, so I relied, as usual, on the final speech. What is antisocial behaviour? If you ask me, I would say that the world has advanced towards civilization by reason of antisocial behaviour. The suffragettes behaved antisocially and achieved votes. Nelson Mandela's antisocial campaign brought justice to South Africa. Now, this young person, this child I represent, this young Pete Timson... Who is neither a suffragette nor Nelson Mandela. Perhaps he is something even better. An innocent child. Innocently playing football. Don't spoil his future with an unnecessary conviction. Mr Rumpel's speech-making may be effective in the Old <clears throat> Bailey, but we are not a jury and not to be swayed by his oratory. Peter Timpson is forbidden to enter Beechwood Grove... What, Sonny, now, haven't you? ...for any reason, and certainly not with a football. <laughs> Disobey this order, and we shall not hesitate to bestow a custodial sentence. Madam Chair, quite clearly, had never been a child. Outside the court, my young client seemed surprisingly grateful. Thanks, Mr Rumpel. I don't know what you've got to thank me for. You got me a aspo. Respect. My mates are going to be well jealous. It was a low moment. But soon life took a distinct change for the better. I'm sorry about the asbo, Mr Rumpole, but I think I might soon be in a position to offer you a murder. Our new client was a clerk in some anonymous government department. His name was Graham Weatherby, and he was accused of the murder of Ludmilla Ravenskaya, who had offered brief intervals of love for sale in a flat in Flight Street, near Paddington Station. My initial enthusiasm for the case had been seriously diminished by the fact that Weatherby insisted on having a QC defend him. 
To my chagrin, Soapy Sam Ballard was introduced into the case, but I was doing my best to help him by asking the right questions. So you say you rang the number you found written up in a telephone kiosk? Yes, I did. It said, Happy Afternoons offered a full personal service. Did you often make such assignations during your lunch hour? Quite often. It was the only time I had available. Ah. You went to her flat, and the concierge, Anna McKinnon, let you in. She showed you to a small sitting room with a door which would open when Ludmilla was ready to entertain you. Did she tell you that she was on her own at that point, and not with any other client? I think I should make it clear that I will be asking these questions when we come to court. I am your QC, and Mr. Rumpel, of course, is my learned junior. Whose duty it is to establish the key questions for you to ask? In a sense, yes. So uh, you went into the small sitting room. How long were you there? Anna McKinnon, the concierge, says it was about a quarter of an hour. It was around ten minutes. My lunch hour was drifting away. I knocked on the bedroom door. Ludmilla, shall I come in now? There was no answer, but I, I went in all the same. And? Ludmilla. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. She's dead. Oh. Ludmilla. Help! Please! Help! She was half-naked, lying very still. I saw bruises around her neck. I called out for the concierge. And when she saw what had happened, she locked you in the sitting room and called the police. How long was it before the police arrived? Quite a while. I suppose an hour, maybe more. Ludmilla's bedroom. Was there only one door? Uh, no. No, the, there was another door huh? next to her bed. I noticed it as I bent down to look at her. Mr. Rumpel has gone into the details with me, but I have to look at the big picture. The point remains that the woman of Ravenskaya was seen alive before your visit. During your visit, she was found dead. You must realise that we can hold out very little hope in your case. Until I've cross-examined the prosecution witnesses, including the forensic expert, we can't say that there is no hope. You seem to have forgotten, Rumpel, that the duty of cross-examining the prosecution witnesses will fall on me. Quite. Then perhaps there was no hope after all. As we were leaving the prison, Soapy Sam Ballard looked seriously disturbed. Should a silk, with my reputation for complete moral probity, Indeed. be concerned in this extremely squalid murder? Uh, well. As chair-elect of the Lawyers as Christian Society, should I be defending a client who has become a frequenter of brothels? I would like to have said that's exactly why he needs defending. But I didn't. I now saw some blessed hope arising from Sam Ballard's strong sense of moral repugnance. The hope increased when I was doing an unpromising case of dangerous driving in Potter's Bar. The prosecutor was a certain Matthew Wickstead, 
a tall, forbidding bird, with a pronounced Adam's apple, a thin beak of a nose, and the sort of voice better suited to a church service than the Potter's Bar Magistrate's Court. He drew me aside. <clears throat> You're in Sam Ballard QC's chambers, aren't you? Yes. He's up for being the next chair for the Lawyers as Christian Society. Lax, you know. Is it? Oh, I see. He's on the committee, of course. He gives of his time so generously. I shall certainly vote for him as chair. Do you see much of him? Yes, he's leading me in a case of murder at the moment. A worthy cause? Sam Ballard's always fighting for worthy causes. Well, not all that worthy. He's defending a client who went to a brothel, alleged to have killed a prostitute. Manual strangulation. Oh, dear. Samuel Ballard QC's defending a man who resorts to... fallen women? I'm afraid so. I can scarcely believe it. You mean the lawyers as Christians would disapprove of anyone undertaking Graham Weatherby's case? Oh, I'm afraid we at Lax would be deeply disappointed. Thank you. That's all I wanted to know. It was a sharp spring morning some weeks later, with a wind that sent our trouser legs flapping and into which we leaned forward like skaters, when Soapy Sam Ballard and I were on our way back from the old bailey, where a judge had fixed a date for Graham Weatherby's trial. I was against a friend of yours a while back, Matthew Wickstead. Splendid fellow. We served together on the board of Lax. How is Matthew? Well, he seemed worried. Not to put too fine a point on it, he was worried about you, Ballard. Worried about me? Well, quite frankly, he was distressed to hear that you are defending a man who patronizes prostitutes and is supposed to have strangled one of them. He didn't think it was the sort of case for a potential chairman of Lax. I can't get out of it now. I don't see why not. I can't tell the client it's not the sort of case I should be concerned with. You'll have to say you're engaged elsewhere, but, uh, of course, you'll have to be sure that there is someone else thoroughly capable of taking it on. Who might I suggest? Me, of course. You feel you could do it? Hopeless cases are my speciality. Well, perhaps that's what should be done. Hey, thank you, Rumpel. Oh, don't thank me. Always willing to help. Now, uh... Mr. Weatherby, I must explain that Mr. Ballard is, unfortunately, engaged in another case, so you'll just have Mr. Rumpel defending you. So I won't have any QC on my side? I have already made the application. The silk gown is on its way. However, I, I think you'll find me just as effective without it. All right, then. So what do you need to know? Now, I wonder, that mark on your face... Have you had it since you were a child? Since I was born. That's why it's called a birthmark. And he put up a hand to cover his face. A childlike defense. Something he'd been doing all his life. You think that's why girls don't want to go to bed with you? I don't know. I never asked them. Why not? Because I know what they'd say. So, it's because of the mark on your face that all your experience of sex has been with prostitutes. They don't mind about it. Not if you can pay them enough. Mm. Let me get some details of events clear. What time did you arrive at the flat? Just before one. And what time was it when you went into the bedroom and found Ludmilla dead? About one thirty. 
I was getting worried about being late back for work. And then the police arrived at about 2.30 with the police doctor? Mm, I suppose it was about then. I was arrested and taken down to the car before they examined the body. Mr. Bernard, hmm? get hold of Professor Ackerman. Ah, the master of the morgues. Get him to give you his report on the post-mortem findings. We want to know as much as we can about the time of death. Mr. Weatherby, had anything like this ever happened to you before? That I had found any of them strangled? No, of course it hadn't. What are you, anyway? A brief, not even a QC, who obviously thinks I'm guilty. I always strangle them. Is that what you think? I think nothing of the sort. To me, you're innocent until the jury comes back and tells me otherwise. <sighs> and just tell me, how close did you get to Lord Miller when you looked at her and discovered she was dead? Well, I... I, I kissed her. You, you, you kissed her? They don't let you kiss them, those girls. Not when they're alive. No, I imagine not. There's, um, just one thing. Yes? That QC thing of yours. Hmm? You'll get that speeded up, won't you, in time for my trial. He had kissed a dead girl. He was up on a charge of murder with a defence which was not yet entirely clear, and his only worry seemed to be the quality of my gown and whether or not I might be seated in the front or second row. been very regular in keeping my diary of late, but now I must record something which is going to make a complete change in my life, and may come as something of a shock to Rumpole. It happened at an afternoon bridge party at my friend Marcia's house. Sir Leonard Bullingham, now a High Court judge, had an afternoon off and was my partner at the bridge table. On the whole, he played well enough, although he tended to go off the rails, as I pointed out to him in the post-mortem after one of our games. If you led a small spade, we could have finessed their queen. As it was, you led a heart for no particular reason that I could see. Wonderful! It wasn't wonderful at all. You should have remembered that I bid spades. No, no, it's wonderful that you have such an incisive mind, Hilda, and a clear memory for every card that's played. These are the sort of talents needed for a great courtroom advocate. <laughs> Pity you never considered reading for the bar. It was then the thought was planted in my mind. Before we left Marcia's, Leonard suggested a further meeting. Uh, I know you've uh, elected to stand by Rumpole through thick and thin, Hilda, but <laughs> I hope... That doesn't prevent us having another occasional date. <laughs> Purely platonic, of course. <laughs> I told Leonard that I would have no objection to meeting him occasionally. I didn't care for that platonic thing he mentioned, as though he flattered himself that there was a chance of it being anything else. The truth was that I needed Leonard's help in what has now become my great decision. I will read for the bar. It was about that time that I began to notice that Hilda was taking a new interest in the law. Breakfast at Froxbury Mansions became a cross-examination. Of course, provocation would reduce the crime of murder to manslaughter. Was there no provocation in the Weatherby case? Mm, not really. He says the girl was dead when he found her. Well, he would say that, wouldn't he? They all do. Who were they all? Everyone in that type of situation. 
How's his mental state? Pretty wobbly at the moment, I should say. You know what I mean, Rumpo. Has he a, a classified mental disease? Is he unhinged? Maybe even mentally deficient? I suppose so, seeing as he works for the Home Office. Oh, do be serious, Rumpo. What I mean is, as I'm sure you realise, could he go for diminished responsibility? Uh, I hardly think so. He seemed to be quite bright for a civil servant, that is. It's saying things like that, Rumpo, that so irritates judges... You want to avoid these little jokes you're so full of. They don't do any good at all. Hmm. No provocation, no diminished responsibility. Hmm. Good to have a practical case to work on. I'll have to give R.V. Weatherby some serious thought. I'm sure that may be of help, but there is only one thing that my client insists upon. What's that? He wants me to become a QC. He wants to be defended by a silk. Really? And have you agreed to that, Rumpo? I've... Thought I might have a bit of a go at it. Then I think you'll need a helping hand. You must get Leonard Bullingham on your side, and then... Well, we shall see what we shall see. More toast? Hmm? There's one slice left. Oh, yes. Thank you, Hilda. And I was left wondering at the new interest in the law, taken by she who must be obeyed. Rumpole, who in my opinion has been mouldering for far too long as about the oldest junior at the criminal bar, seems to have come to his senses at last. Of course, Rumpole will never be as distinguished a QC as Daddy, to whom Rumpole's murder cases seemed very down market. At least no one had to die to provide my father with work. I had told Rumpole he should get Leonard Bullingham on side, and a week later I heard the result. After we had bid and won a satisfying four hearts, Leonard pulled out a crumpled letter. A letter from your old man. I looked at the letter. My dear old bull, my wife may have told you during the course of one of those tedious card games you both appear to enjoy that I'm thinking of putting on a silk gown and joining those QCs, queer customers is what I call them, who loll around the front row in various courtrooms, relying on their underpaid juniors to do all the hard work. In support of my application, I need to call a client and a judge who can speak well of me. As a client, I can call any member of the Timpson family, whom I may have rescued by my skill as an advocate from the shades of the prison house. Finding a decent criminal is easy. It's harder to find a judge who would be equally helpful. Looking back on the cases I did before you at the Old Bailey, I feel sure that you would be pleased to admit that my arguments were, on the whole, arguments based on the interests of justice, so I feel sure I can rely on your support for my present application. Your old sparring partner, Horace Rumpel. P.S. I'm sure my, my wife, wife would welcome, welcome your support for the, the Rumpel case. case. She has wondered why my undoubted talent as an advocate has not yet elevated me to the same rank as her late father. It's for her sake that I have had to plead this most difficult of all cases, my own. Hardly the most tactful way of asking for a favour, is it? Well, you know, Rumpo. But I've been thinking... Leonard, you told me that when you become a QC... Mm -hmm. You rule yourself out from all the smaller, less important cases. Oh, let's say you're no longer offered the bread and butter. You're kept for the caviar and roast goose. So Rumpole wouldn't be able to deal with all the petty crimes the Timpson family get up to? Oh, certainly not. Such minor offences wouldn't be considered worth the expensive employment of a leading QC. 
So they could be taken up by someone who had only recently been called to the bar. Hilda, can I guess what you're thinking? <laughs> I'm thinking that you should do all you can to help Rumpole to become a QC. Ah. <laughs> My practice was flourishing and had taken a further turn for the better with the appearance of a new client, Scotty Thompson, a lorry driver accused of an unusual importation from Europe to Dover. I was back again in the interview room at Brixton Prison. I had no idea what was in them cases, Mr. Rumpole. That interview room had recently become a kind of home from home. It was there that Bonnie Bernard and I met Scotty Thompson. He was a short, high-shouldered, perpetually smiling man who seemed very anxious to please. I was given the job by an old friend, Fred Atkins. He does a lot of business in Europe, so he booked my company, Islands Transport, to do a pickup. That pickup was down by Georgia, close to the Russian border? You got it, Mr. Bernard. There was a sort of depot there. I showed them my documents and they loaded on them three packing cases. You knew where you were to deliver them. Fred had told me to deliver at some warehouse in the Canary Wharf area. I was to ring him when I got through customs and he'd tell me where to go. He had a daughter getting married, that's why he couldn't do the job himself. Did you ring him? Yeah, and I could certainly hear the sound of the wedding party going on. I was talking to him when customs was opening the crates. I told him what they was doing and he slammed the phone down on me. Never heard a word from him since. And then I saw what I brought over. Girls? Yeah. Good lookers, too. Oh, they must have had a terrible journey. I felt bad. I wanted to find out how they were and how they got there, but I was arrested. And Fred? He's done a runner. We've given all the information to the police. The search on for Fred, all ports and airports. So what was in the crates came as a complete surprise to you. I'd have never have done it if I knew, Mr. Rumpole. That's no way to make a woman travel. No way. Did I believe him? I told myself firmly that it didn't matter what I believed. A jury would have to decide. So we left Brixton Prison and our client, whose parting shot was... I reckon I'm like them girls, Mr. Rumpole. I've been taken for a ride. Briefs are rather like buses. You wait an age to get one, and then a whole platoon of them turn up at the same time. Now, thanks to the industrious Bonnie Bernard, I had not only young Peter's Asbo and Graham Weatherby's murder, but also Scotty Thompson's importation of illegal female immigrants. I was brooding about this when there was a knock at the door and Ballard appeared before me. I've come to serve you, Rumpo. Ballard was, I thought, in a state of high excitement. Oh, that's extremely kind of you, Ballard. I'd like a large cup of black coffee, no milk or sugar, and... I don't mean I've come to serve you, Rumpole. Rather, I've come to serve this on you. He put a document on my desk. There. It had a heading which read, Application for an Antisocial Behaviour Order. I thought it might have something to do with young Peter Timson, until Ballard read out the particulars of the complaint as to conduct. One... Bringing food into chambers consisting of various pies, 
and sausages with chips. Yes. On one occasion, a portion of steak and kidney pie was found in the said Rumpole's filing system, a place reserved for legal documents. Well, Two, bringing in bottles of wine and consuming them on the premises. And Three, singing in a loud voice. After the said Rumpole, having for once brought a case to a successful conclusion, thereby embarrassing members and the clerical staff of the said chambers. I thought I sang rather well on that occasion. Four, smoking small cigars, causing a health hazard in chambers and further polluting the atmosphere and thereby increasing the risk of global warming. Who thought of this ridiculous rubbish? We have formed a subcommittee to deal with your behaviour, Rumpole. Staff of the chambers have told us that firm steps must be taken to see that you become more environmentally friendly. What? Now, if you'll consent to sign along the dotted line... Consent? I'm not consenting to anything. I may eat steak and kidney pie. I may seek comfort in Pomeroy's very ordinary. I may need a small cigar. You may feed upon nut cutlets and drink carrot juice. But I know which of us a client would rather have on his side when the dark shadows of the law begin to close in against him. So that's what I think of your ridiculous bit of paper. I shall file it in the waste paper basket. This is very foolish of you, Rumpole. I can prove a service of this notice, and the law will have to take its course. Anxious to escape chambers and do some essential research on the Weatherby case, I had persuaded my instructing solicitor to drive me to Dover on a Saturday morning. We were at the harbour, looking down at the sea. Listen, you hear the grating roar of pebbles which the waves draw back and fling at their return up the high strand. What is that, Mr. Rumble? That is a poem by Matthew Arnold. Dover Beach meant almost as much to him as it does to us. What, what does it mean to us, exactly? Well, it's where the story starts. We need to find out all we can about Lord Miller. Yeah, it won't take too long, will it? I told the wife that I was just taking you out for a short spin in the country. As the barrister of your choice, Bonnie Bernard, I am responsible for many things, but not for what you tell your wife. Well, Come along. We're off to the removal centre. What's that, exactly? It's where they either decide to let you stay in this country... Or, far more frequently, force you to go back to where you came from. It'll be interesting to see how Lud Miller slipped through their fingers. You seem to know quite a lot about that already, Mr. Rumpole. Not enough yet. Not nearly enough. The removal centre was a large building, clearly full to overflowing. We were shown into an office where a hard-faced woman asked the nature of our business. Good afternoon. Yes, we are lawyers engaged on an important case funded by the government. We are interested in finding out when a particular woman entered the country. Oh, yes. Someone who was found in a crate on the back of a lorry. Now, I'm afraid I won't be able to help you. Now, if you'll excuse me, we are very busy here. It was then that God, having nothing better to do, came to the aid of a struggling defence barrister. Mr Rumpole! I turned to see a face I vaguely recognised. Pink-cheeked and decorated with a small moustache. Don't you remember, Mr. Rumpole? I'm Des Pershaw. They wanted to do me for dangerous driving on the M2. Oh, did I get you off? Indeed you did, Mr. Rumpole. Hmm. I work here now. So, what can I do for you? I want to know when a woman called Ludmilla Ravenskaya entered here illegally. Oh, well, 
Let's have a look on the computer. This led to prolonged clicking research on various computers, which ended in a cry of triumph from Pershaw. Aha! I've got it for you, Mr Rumpole. It was the 12th of September last year. Illegal entry into Dover Harbour, and she was allowed to apply for asylum. We let her go free on condition that she reported regularly to the police. Had anyone suggested that she might be a candidate for asylum? Uh, I'm afraid the computer doesn't tell you that sort of thing. It seems she was just one of the lucky ones. Not all that lucky, Mr. Pershaw. She got herself murdered. Further information about Ludmilla didn't become available until three weeks later, when I was sharing a bottle of Chateau Thames embankment with myself. At another table, members of my chambers were gathered listening to some story or anecdote, no doubt concerning Horace Rumpole, which appeared to set the table at a roar. Was I, I wondered, some antique member of chambers who needed clearing out in the war against global warming? These thoughts were interrupted by a youngish man with slicked-down blonde hair. Lars Bergman, new crime correspondent of the Daily Fortress. Oh. You're Mr Rumpole, aren't you? Yeah. That man at the bar pointed you out. I'm doing a piece on the Weatherby case. <laughs> He's so obviously guilty. Why are you wasting your time on him? Everyone needs defending. It's never a waste of time. Oh, that lovely girl. Murdered by a client, eh? You seem very sure about that. Oh, the reason I feel so strongly about it is because I actually met her. You met Ludmilla Ravenskaya? As a client? No! My editor wanted me to write a piece about organisations that import foreign girls to be prostitutes. Oh, so how did you meet Ludmilla? Oh, I saw an ad in the phone box. Exotic Russian beauty will show you that the Cold War is over. <laughs> Sounded a possible lead, and there was a telephone number. So you went to Flight Street? And met Ludmilla, yeah. She thought I'd come for sex, of course. But I told her I'd come for information, which would be far better paid. So she told you what, exactly? Nothing that day. She said she was too busy with clients. But she told me to call in a week and she'd meet me and give me a story. She wanted half the money in advance. Did she get it? No. Well, I gave her hundred quid as a retainer. And that was on top of what I had to pay for the sex I didn't have. And did you phone her the next week? Well, before the week was up, your client Weatherby had shut her mouth forever. Hmm. Did you see the concierge while you were there? A woman called Anna McKinnon, I believe. I guess I did. There was a woman who showed me in and said goodbye to me when I left. I told her I'd be back to see Ludmilla again. Wanted her to think I was going to be a regular, you know. <laughs> You're on a hide into nothing, Mr Rumpole. Weatherby's guilty as hell. <sighs> Our editor always says barristers get fat and rich wasting public money on hopeless cases. I may be fat, but I'm certainly not rich. And your editor must be very old indeed. Why'd you say that? Born before Magna Carta which said no one should be sent to prison without a trial by their equals. I'm just warning you what to expect. See you in court. Mm -hmm. And so he left me, and I poured out the remainder of the bottle. I pondered on the fact that Lars had brought me an invaluable piece of information concerning poor, beautiful, dead Ludmilla. She had been prepared to talk openly to him about the manner of her importation to this country to work as a prostitute. But before she was able to... She had been murdered. Perhaps someone knew she was about to tell her story, and perhaps they had resolved that it would be a very good idea if she did not. Thinking over the information that Lars had brought to me, I raised a glass to him. In spite of everything, an absent friend. So now I needed to find out more about the way in which Ludmilla might have come to be in this country. 
and I told Bernard to arrange a meeting in my chambers with my favourite detective, Ferdinand Ian Gilmore Newton, commonly known as Fig. He arrived sporting the old Mac he wore in all weathers, and with his perpetual coat. <laughs> Bless you. Oh, as always, it would be of some considerable help, Mr. Rumpole, if I knew exactly what I was looking for. You're looking for a warehouse somewhere in the Canary Wharf area where girls are delivered in boxes. Blimey. Go round all the pubs in Canary Wharf, see if anyone's noticed any unusual deliveries. Oh, that's a tall order and don't mistake. I know you think I'm asking the impossible. You always do, Mr. Rumpole, but as ever... I'll do my best. I can't ask for anything more. <laughs> Three days later at breakfast time, I was tackling my eggs and bacon when she who must be obeyed found a sensational story in her morning fortress. It's your case, Rumpo. Which case? Your own case. Well-known criminal barrister faces jail for breaking of Asbo. Uh Mr. Horace Rumpo, famous for his defence tactics in some high-profile murder cases, is having to defend a new client in the magistrate's court himself. Soapy Sam Ballard has gone too far this time. Seems it was you who went too far, taking all that food into chambers. And smoking, of course. They're not exactly capital offences. Antisocial behaviour. I have always done my best to be antisocial. Well, this time it seems you've succeeded. I suppose now I'll have to do my best to get you out of this. I don't think that'll be necessary, Hilda. I think I should be judge of that. What exactly have you in mind? I have a friend who might put in a word for you. I take it you don't want that last piece of toast. Uh, no, no, you have it, Hilda. Although I pressed her, she who must be obeyed declined to tell me the name of her friend. So, like my clients Graham Weatherby and Scotty Thompson... I could only wait to come to trial. Uh, well now, Mr Rumpole, what have you got to say for yourself? I don't speak for myself, sir. I speak for all those unfortunate enough to be caught up in this new type of illegal procedure. Are you calling the ASBO rules illegal? You'd better go back to Parliament and tell them they made a mistake. <laughs> the crowd of journalists who'd come, delighted to watch my trial, tittered obediently, but I clung to my argument. No need for that. But you must see the absurdity of this nonsensical and inept piece of legislation. What is my crime? I've looked through the statutes over and over again, and nowhere do I find that eating at your desk is a criminal activity. I keep a bottle or two of Pomeroy's very ordinary claret in the drawer of my filing cabinet. It is not Pichon Longueville, perhaps, but drinking it, if you have the courage and the stamina to do so, is surely not a criminal offence. We live in an unhappy period when the government wants to use its legislative powers to tell us how to lead our lives. It wants to tell us what to eat and drink, what to smoke, and how we cross the road. Children are not allowed to grow fat, and if they do, they're snatched from their families and put into a home. If you smoke cigarettes, your doctor may refuse to treat your ailments. There are plans afoot to turn us into a nation of vegans who drink carrot juice and go on hiking tours to the Lake District. My case is an object lesson 
in this form of tyranny, which is designed to send a man to prison for eating a slice of pie. In the great days of our history, magistrates such as you, sir, stood up against a tyrannical king who tried to enforce taxes not approved by Parliament. You have your chance today, sir, to reject these illegal and inappropriate proceedings. You can stand up for justice. You have a chance today, sir, to become the Pym or Hampton of the City Magistrates' Court. You may be criticised by the bureaucrats of Westminster, but you'll be acclaimed by all those who cherish our ancient freedoms, our constitution, and the proper rule of law. I then sat down and saw the lonely figure on the bench look, I thought a little desperately, at the clock, from which he seemed to get some encouragement. I'm looking at the time. I'll give my decision at two o'clock. Bonnie Bernard and I lunched in a neighbouring pub on cold pie and Guinness and hoped this was not about to become a criminal activity. Well, it's not been too bad. I've always wanted to know what the view was like from the dock. <clears throat> we must keep hoping for the best. <clears throat> We've got a Weatherby trial to consider. Uh, and Scotty Thompson's case. Mm. Any word from Fig? Not yet. He's taking his time as usual. Mm. When I'm sent down, at least I'll get plenty of time for reading. Mm. I could read Milton. I've never really got on with him. Not many jokes in Paradise Lost. Oh, no. Not a laugh a minute now. Anyway, it'll be interesting to find out what life's really like for my clients if I lose their cases. Are you going to finish that last piece of pie, Bonnie? Well, I... Uh, a condemned man and all that. Please, Mr. Rumpel, help yourself. Thank you. When we were called back to court, the magistrate made a totally unexpected announcement. <clears throat> uh, Mr. Samuel Ballard, QC, who is responsible for this prosecution, wishes me to inform the court that after further mature consideration, he has decided to discontinue these proceedings. Oh. Uh, he is anxious that any custodial sentence might prevent Mr. Rumpole from practising, mm. and he doesn't think it in the interests of his chambers <laughs> or the bar in general to proceed with a judgment against Mr. Rumpole. <laughs> the shades of the prison house melted like snow in summer, as did the great lost opportunity of laughing my time away in Chokey in the company of Samson Agonistes. Part one of The Antisocial Behaviour of Horace Rumpole by John Mortimer. Horace Rumpole was played by Timothy West. His wife Hilda, she who must be obeyed, was Prunella Scales. Soapy Sam Ballard, Michael Cochran. Bonnie Bernard, Nicholas Leprevo. And Prosecutor Parks was Roger May. Madame Chair of Magistrates was Jilly Mears. Graham Weatherby, David Holt. Lars Bergman, Matthew Morgan, Judge Leonard Bullingham, David Shaw Parker, and Fig Newton was Geoffrey Whitehead. Other parts were played by members of the company. 
The antisocial behavior of Horace Rumpole is directed by Marilyn Imrie and is a Catherine Bailey production for BBC Radio 4.